check. We're going to be Lennon and McCartneying it today. Yeah, here we are, uh, going back to uh, what 2018, 2019, single microphone, completely ratchet setup. I don't even think we had single microphone back then, did we? Uh. I don't know. We had all of Sam Cedar's equipment. Yeah, yeah, we had fifty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars worth of Sam Cedar equipment. Even Boy. even when I was, uh, I had a show with Jared Shanahan uh, back before Antifada. We had multiple karaoke mics. Oh yeah, I think I saw those little pieces of shit still uh, in <laughs> yeah. your pile of equipment over yeah, there. They're in the graveyard. This is what happens when a chapter of life ends. When one door closes and another one opens, you lose all your microphones. Yep. I don't, this is probably chapter three of the Antifada. It's yeah. Ch- it's, chap- it's definitely chapter three of my life. Oh, you feel like uh, an act has ended. Absolutely. Um, when I was 18, I moved to New York City. I lived in uh, the East Williamsburg area for most of that time, with, mm. with some brief times in like Bed-Stuy or Crown Heights or Bushwick, but for the last... Six years I've lived in East Williamsburg. I've never talked about this on the show because I don't want anything creepy happening, but sure. I, lived, I lived with you and Jake Flores mm-hmm. at a building called 538 Johnson, mm-hmm. a loft building known for its punk shows, but also for its dirtbag left podcasters, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly that apartment. <laughs> apartment 207, we can say that now. We, were, we weren't the only dirtbag podcasters in the building, but that was definitely the home base of the Antifada PDA universe. Yeah, I would say uh, due to various uh, life circumstances, I washed up on the shores of 538 Johnson a few years ago, uh-huh. uh, about six months or so before the pandemic hit. And yeah, only about five or six blocks away from, you know, my first New York City apartment in the year 2001. So it was a real circle of life situation. And I suppose for me too, like it's, uh, you know, the end of a end of an era, because despite in the aughts having lived in like a lot of the different boroughs and a lot of different apartments, lived in Manhattan, lived in Queens, lived in South Brooklyn, I actually managed to be in Bushwick for like eight or nine years or so, uh, and boy, was I ready to be done with it. I am so happy. We have a new apartment now. It's in a beautiful, it's on a tree-lined street, like a beautiful part of central Brooklyn, nice brick buildings, close to transportation, so much bigger, about the same price, and uh, it's actually a functional apartment. So we moved just this last month, and uh, it does feel like a new beginning. Yeah, and you, you and I moved together. We shared. Oh, we don't boy. live together, but we shared a U-Haul. We had a, a nice. You, you. I mean, Sean's a professional mover, so he helped out a ton. I'm a former professional mover. Well, you knew what you were doing with the chowder. You got all the, the chowder. <laughs> you're telling me about some of the moving terms. Yeah, but yeah. So now, now Sean and I live at very different parts of Brooklyn. I live in. Well, I don't even live in Brooklyn anymore. I live in. Ridgewood, Queens. Queens. Uh, yep. And so not too far from where I lived before, but very different vibe. It's far. I it's, live in a normal place. It's far in terms of mentality. No know? roaches over here. Um, yeah. Uh, leaving the punk house life behind. Taking. I So, uh, you know, at, at 538, they've been like getting the punks and the bohemians out over the last year or so. And. I sometimes run into my old neighbors and I say like, oh, update them on the building and stuff. And one of them said, this uh, skater guy who I see around Maria Hernandez Park sometimes, 
I was like, how do you feel after leaving the building? And he's like, oh, it's a, it's a life shower. A and life shower? And I was like, what, a, what do you mean by that? And he's like, you'll find out. What? And I am finding out. What is it? What the fuck is a life shower? You were living in a very filthy place. That, even you know, even oh, if you were clean, you can't yeah. really clean those lofts. You yeah, know, they're just too true. big. Yeah, so like, even the clean ones are grimy. Right, right, right. And the roaches are beyond control. You know, the temperature is beyond control. It's a working light industrial factory on the base, on the ground floor, too. So there was, And like, they're working with chemicals that yeah, you can smell during the day. Th- and there was, like, a skein of, like, some sort of viscous kind of dirty fluid that just kind of, like, landed on everything. Did you notice that? That, like, all the hard surfaces were kind of slightly oily and sticky? <laughs> Did you not notice that? Well, I, di- I didn't no. think that was the light industry's fault. Well, I, I thought maybe I, that was... Uh, well, no. I have to imagine that was connected <laughs> to those smells that you smelt, all the heavy chemicals. When I downstairs. moved in, I did some cleaning, and I, I was able to take care of some of that. But not all of it. You can't do every- Anyway, um, my new place is clean. It's very nice. But we're not totally set up yet. So you might hear some. The audio might be a little bit off, but we're going to work on it. Yeah, we're like a B-class, like uh, second-tier podcast. And today we'll have the quality of a third tier. But we hope to give you content of a, a first tier podcast, number one. The Daily Dose or whatever the New the York Times one dose. is. The Daily Caller FM. <laughs> Bash the Nation. Here we go. I fucking started a new job yesterday. And all of a sudden, you know, like I, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I get a call from a guy. He's like, you working? I said, no. You know, and work always starts at 7, so I was expecting to have my entire morning ahead of me. The guy's like, all right, well, you know, we need a guy up in Elmhurst. So I suited up. I went down there. I started this job. Turns out I'm the foreman on this job. Turns out it's a nice little easy week-long gig, but I have been up since 3 o'clock in the morning. So I promised A-list content. It might be B-list content, too. We'll see what happens. I find that hard to believe. Um, We were drilling today and the operator who's this 19 year old kid they were teaching him how to use the thing and he broke an auger off in the ground which meant that my nice easy job turned into a job where me and this other dude had to shovel like six feet down into the ground so that they could weld the fucking auger bit back together that's the kind of day we're having today. that the when the auger broke did you say that does not auger well i wouldn't say that, but I could have said that. I would have been. It would have been clever for me to say that. Is that our uh, like telling the future, right? You'd like in Roman times, you'd right. take a dove and you'd throw it up in the air, and it would fly. And depending on which way it flew, that would be the future or whatever. But an auger just basically pulls dirt and shit out of the ground. So you you, you don't make a lot of puns on the work site. Or maybe not that kind of pun. Uh, maybe not that kind of puns. We we've been known to pun. I'm working with an exhausting guy. They sent me a guy today for my gang, and uh, he's one of these dudes. He's like an older guy, and he's like really kind of like nice, super cool. He fucking works really hard. But you ever work with those people who are just fucking exhausting? Uh-huh. Like they always have something to say. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like talk, talk, talk the entire fucking day. A few times I had to like invent things to do so I could walk away for five minutes. Yeah. It's like, this is not my podcast job, buddy. Yeah, buddy. I, I gotta, talk I got a living <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> So what are we talking about today? Well, we would be remiss if um, we didn't uh, give a shout out to some various people. You have here on the sheet, shout out to listeners who came to what, the party or the live show? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I think we've already shouted out the listeners who came to the live show. If we didn't, 
Thank you so much for coming out. Hopefully, we'll be doing them again. We had a lot of fun. Yo, so hopefully it was great. There'll be some more on the horizon. I um, can give a shout out to Andy because I was very hesitant to do another live show, but you were just like, cool, I'm going to set this up and then like present it to you and we'll do it. And it ended up being fucking great. So. Yeah, if you haven't listened to the, the bonus episode where we've got the audio from the Brooklyn live show, I think it came out really great. It was a lot of fun. Um, but... I put that on the sound sheet to shout out the listeners who came to the party. Oh, right. We had a, a, a going out, an eviction party. Well, we weren't evicted, but we uh, a going away party at 538. Uh, it was extremely lit. There was an Orbeez pool. There was awesome DJs. There were various dens because three of the roommates had moved out. So the everything, it was just a free-for-all. And we had a ton of fun. And some listeners came out. Um, and uh, I... I met at least two of them. I think there was more there, um, but everyone who came, thanks so much. I posted it on the Discord. So if you're on the Discord community, you know, on occasion, there will be, you know, I'll, I'll post what we're up to. And uh, I, before we get too far, t- um, today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, uh, October 4th, there is a event at Trans Pecos in my new neighborhood of Ridgewood, Queens on Wyckoff. Weirfield or maybe something like that. Weirfield. No, it's on Wyckoff and Weirfield. We're having a release event for the new Woodbine Journal Reservoir. We put one out last year, and there's another one out this year. And so there's a, a show tonight with bands and DJs, and it's a 10 to $20 suggested donation. No one turned away for lack of funds. You get a copy of the journal, and you get to hang out, and uh, it'll be a good time. So that's Wednesday, October 4th at Transpecos. Come check it out. But... So shout out to them, and also shout out to Matt Chrisman and Amberola. Yeah, uh, people who uh, are on social media, that's probably all of you, might have noticed that I deleted my Twitter last week. Why did I do that? Because uh, one of my best friends, one of my favorite people, uh, a guy who came to my wedding, uh, a guy who... I actually introduced to his partner, a guy that I know very well and uh, love dearly in real life, was just being shat upon by the worst people in the world on Twitter.com. And it was basically unusable for me. My timeline was just like people saying horrible things about my buddy. And that was real life intersecting internet life way too much for me. So I fucking deleted. Um, Now, uh, I'm happy to say we're getting uh, updates and... Uh, one of the messages that I think it's okay for me to share because we're trying to keep, you know, the family's trying to keep details really close is that, uh, you know, Matt was holding his uh, newborn baby daughter uh, and uh, he was saying that this is what was keeping him going and keeping him fighting. He said that and spite. <laughs> so the spite of the haters uh, and his young baby girl are keeping him going, and uh, without going into too many details, he's making progress. So we're very, very happy about that. It was a tough week, I must say, that that week last week. Yeah, and that's, I think that's, for me, that's a huge part of the new chapter, too, because Matt and Amber also lived uh, there. Well, yeah, Amber lived there, Amber Matt did. spent a lot of time there. Um, and so, you know, moving out during that week when, when uh, Amber and Matt are both in the hospital um, was definitely pretty heavy. Yeah. Uh, in more ways than one. Yeah, you and me were both there for that. So, yeah, shout out to Matt, shout out to Amber, shout out to their little one. I'm not sure if her name is public, but shout out to all of them. They are family, and uh, we are, um, yeah, fingers crossed and much yeah. love out to you them. You have not heard the last of Matt Chrisman, that's for sure. Yeah, not on this podcast anyway. 
So, yeah, in terms of Twitter, I might be back, to be honest with you. I don't know if I can be gone forever. Andy, what do you think? Should I quit or should I come back? You should you should come back, but, you know, like, limit the amount of emotional investment that yeah. you spend. In the, I'm, I th- hopefully Twitter will be ending, so they keep teasing us with these, like, like wh- whenever I hear they're going to make you do a face ID or put your near yeah. credit card, I'm like, yes, please do please it. Because that'll, be that'll be the fucking end. <laughs> Kill this At least thing. for me. Like, maybe everyone else will do it, but I will not. So hopefully it'll be over soon. But until then, you get way more engagement than the Antifada account. So well, you know, I, <laughs> it's, it's helpful for me. The, the, the reason why I'm thinking about going back is because uh, I saw, because I was lurking on the Antifada Twitter account, which I, of course, still do. Uh, but I saw that Daniel Tut, who's on, I think he's on Varn Vlog a lot, and I think he's on This Is Revolution, and I think he's on Sublation, he's like a Marxist philosopher, was reading the uh, Engels, same Engels biography that I'm reading, Marx's General, The Revolutionary History of Frederick Engels, uh, by Tristam Hunt. And I said, damn, I'm going to reach out to him and whatever. But then I realized I can't do that from the Antifada account because mm-hmm. he doesn't follow us. But like I'm mutuals with him on my personal account. So maybe just for business purposes, I have to be dragged back. to. Twitter. I would love to talk about that book because I saw some inter- interesting debates around what Daniel Tutt was saying on that book. But well, yeah, so hopefully we'll, we'll get into maybe that. Maybe we all three of us can read it and we'll talk about in it. In the future. But um, yeah, so moving on from uh, our, our stuff... Uh, Rate uh, another thing that's you know right in our neighborhood or our former neighborhood is uh, a a new newly minted refugee crisis in mm. New York City. Uh, there was a a HERC, which is one of these uh, asylum seeker uh, shelters, just a couple blocks away from Five Thirty Eight, and then there's another one in uh, like the Bed Stuy Bushwick border. And I've been uh, I've been you know I my Spanish is okay. It's uh, a lot of these guys are um, Venezuelan, and they have a real like rural accent. So I, I have some a tough time talking to them. Um, so I've got some information about it, but a lot of it is through activists and people who have been working with them. Because a lot of them, so yeah, a lot of them are are very um, poor rural Venezuelan people, and then also people from Africa, from Mauritania, from Senegal, uh, French speakers, but not just French speakers, Arabic speakers. Uh, speakers of languages I've never heard of before. Mm. And um, there's, uh, so, you know, in the history of New York immigration, uh, usually um, folks come here and they've got some connection or at yeah. least they have like a neighborhood they can come into. Uh, but with with this specific flux of asylum seekers, um, there's been well over 100,000 of them in the last month. A lot of them don't have those connections and, uh, not that they can't you know, make do on their own, but the city is not necessarily helping them uh, integrate and get jobs and like have a, a stable life. And it's kind of been the intersection of two different crises because you've got the homelessness crisis uh, in uh, New York and around the entire country. Uh, I think it's something like 70,000 people, including families with children on any given night, are in the uh, homeless shelter system of the city. Uh, which has been a capacity for a long time with the refugees who have come and tried to gain asylum and try to make a life for themselves here. In the meantime, in the city, uh, you've had the kind of uh, homeless shelter and refugee centers uh, combined. Uh, And if there wasn't enough room uh, for all the people in the city who have been pushed out of their apartments by high rent or low wages, 
um, typical travails of the lower spectrum of the working class in this city uh, and in this country. Now also, too, those people didn't have a place. And now on top of that, you have the refugee crisis. So it's turning into a big political thing. You've got a huge backlash that's brewing, not just among conservatives, but as we saw intimations of during the COVID crisis, when you had like people on the you know liberal Upper West Side who were protesting, you know, with signs and pickets outside of hotels turned into homeless shelters, right? That it is also like the 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 upper middle class, like petty bourgeoisie liberal class in New York City, which is also starting to break as well under the strain of having to put up people who have nowhere else to go. So it's reaching like a real crisis point in this city, and it doesn't seem as though. Um, the flood of people trying to escape uh, poverty, trying to escape violence, trying to escape, of course, as we know, um, the early effects of climate change is stopping anytime soon. So um, there's a really, did you want to talk about this article in the New York Times? Yeah, but uh, so before we talk about that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what little that I've seen of how this is going. And this is, this is again, in North Brooklyn, so there's not protests against the asylum seekers here. Those protests are happening farther out in Queens, like at the Queens-Long Island border. Curtis Sliwa is, like, leading these protests. Oh, of, the uh, Guardian Angels guy, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems just like homeowners and petty bourgeois people and just, you know, assorted racists and, and MAGA chuds um, going to these asylum... So, yeah, it's been in, in Queens and in Staten Island are the two that I've heard about. Um just trying to make people feel unwelcome, um, harassing them with loudspeakers, trying to block the buses from coming in. Uh, and I can, you can only assume there's going to be more and more of that. And fortunately, that's not going on in our neighborhood. Uh, there's been, from what I can tell, mostly efforts to help. Like there's a free store right near one of the Hercs. The Hercs are uh, humanitarian emergency resource centers, but these are, you know, buildings converted into shelters that are just filled with cots. Mm -hmm. And so uh, none of them are particularly nice, but the one that was in the Bed-Stuy-Bushwick border, um, at when people started moving in there, none of them have kitchens, and in fact they've been like raiding them to take away anything that people use to cook, like rice cookers or what have you. Um, but the one in bed didn't even have a shower. Oh, man. So fortunately, uh, people from a local uh, community farm um, started working with these folks to like help them grill at the farm. So there's like uh, people, like one corner of the farm is folks from Africa uh, grilling. One corner of the farm is folks from Venezuela uh, making arepas and, and grilling, you know, um, so they can cook for themselves, so they can have some freedom because uh, the security guards are apparently pretty brutal there at these places. Um, and just places they can, like, you know, meet New Yorkers and, mm -hmm. like, talk and figure out what they're going to do with their lives now that they're here. Some of them have cho chose to be here. Some of them were bused here. Uh, and um, also people from the farm help them figure out how to go to the local public pool by, like, mm. here's what you got to do. You need a lock. You need a swimsuit. So people came together, got them a bunch of locks and swimsuits so these people could take a shower. That's great. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, it's great that people are helping, but it's really horrible that yeah. they would put these people in this situation. For sure. Um, and what they really need, as far as I can tell, is just to get a New York City ID uh, so they can open a bank account so they can start working. Yeah. 
They need the police to stop harassing them and taking away their bikes because a lot of them are doing, you know, app delivery jobs and task rabbit and stuff like that. But the the cops are harassing them because uh, they they're on um, semi legal mopeds, and uh, the the impression I get from the activists that are working with them is that these people can make do on their own. The city is just kind of keeping them in this like bureaucratic limbo where the city's blaming the state or the, the, the city's blaming Biden, Biden's blaming Adams. And it seems like it's all just a shell game to justify this intentionally uh, feeble apparatus that is intended to get people to leave yeah. or to just work here in like very black labor, like very unregulated labor, uh, which is a very good metaphor for the way immigration works in this country in general. Yeah. At least since the early nineties. Well, you know, I don't know. I never know how much of like what I'm reading and responding is like confirmation bias for me, but there's this wonderful article in the New York times. Wonderful because it fucking says the quiet part out loud. Uh, an article that I feel like maybe would have been appropriate for the nation 20 years ago has now made it into the paper of record in this big uh, long story by Marcella uh, Valdez from October 1st entitled, Why Can't We Stop Unauthorized uh, Immigration? Because It Works. Subtitle, Our Broken Immigration System is Still the Best Option for Many Migrants and U.S. Employers. So it basically runs through... What everybody kind of knows who's looked into the subject is like the central contradiction in our um, immigration system, which is that you've basically set up a situation where there's a highly exploitable, highly pliable um, workforce that American capitalists, big and small, uh, can employ, whether those are adult or as we've seen more and more uh, children in a factory or a slaughterhouse setting uh, in retail and, it's, and certainly in uh, farm working, this New York Times article just straight up uh, comes out and says that, like, this is a system that actually works because it makes things cheaper for American workers. It does the, quote, jobs that Americans don't want to do. And it posits, right, like, in the middle of the article, it says... One of the most curious aspects of American immigration politics is that Congress tends to invest heavily in immigration enforcement, but not in the enforcement of labor laws that could dissuade businesses from exploiting unauthorized workers in the first place. Yes, very curious. This is what many of us have been saying for decades, right? Is that this is the ideal situation for American capitalists because they can have basically ICE come and raid a workplace uh, as soon as workers start to get uppity and organize, and it gives them like the whip hand against large sectors of the American working class who are in the shadows. And now this is seeming to percolate its way into like liberal opinion, right? But like, there's not really any solution to this under those auspices. What's like, what's the the bourgeois solution to this? Is I guess let's see the end right here. The only immigration policies that Congress can bring itself to, to enact, it seems, are funding more border security and ICE raids. But these actions alone will never fix America's immigration problem. No matter what anyone says on Capitol Hill, migrants know that if they can just make it inside the United States, they'll find relative safety and plenty of work. And it talks about how Congress won't do anything because, of course, it has the power of capital 
behind having this highly exploitable workforce. So this is just where we're at in this country. Three administrations, right, have promised comprehensive immigration reform. Doesn't seem like Congress is ever going to have this. So we have to confront as communists, like, what do you do about that situation? If there's going to be continually something like 20, 30, 40 million Americans who have way less rights, uh, certainly in the workplace and elsewhere, right? How do we interact? How do we um, how do we integrate them into the American working class in such a way that capital can't use either of us anymore, you know, to, to hurt the other? Well, it, it, yeah, it seems like the, the unofficial policy has been going on since uh, NAFTA when uh, the Mexican economy completely collapses in conjunction with a destruction of the traditional markets of uh, indigenous and rural people living in Mexico. And as a result... Millions of Mexicans had to come to the United States mm-hmm. in between 1994 um, and with, a, a, I think, peaking at around 2000. I don't know when the peak was, but in increasing numbers. Um, and the, the policy was uh, initially like, well, these are workers who do a lot of uh, manual labor in, in border areas. And so they were more or less permitted to, like, gather on the border and kind of rush it and they were they could go back and forth and do this um i think it was madeline albright uh under the clinton administration who started building walls along those borders the result of those walls and uh, more dhs uh, activity in the the urban border areas was people had to cross through deserts in california in arizona in texas and as a result of that, people died by the thousands, mm-hmm. um, hundreds a year. Unknown thousands of immigrants have died. Uh, and why did they die? Was it neglect? Was it because the border wasn't strong enough? No, it was designed that way. So in the show notes, I'll put it in an essay. I know I've talked about it on the show, but maybe not recently, called Design to Kill, which was written by activists from the No More Deaths uh, organization, which is uh, in Arizona. And their contention, which... I think, you know, if you read between the lines of the New York Times article, you see the same thing, is um, on one hand, the United States economy needs millions of immigrant workers. We always had, um, but we need this specific sort of uh, uh, Mexican or Central American, now South American Mm -hmm. and African worker, workers from all over the world to come in. But they can't come in too comfortable. They Mm -hmm. can't come in with... Any sort of, you know, obviously there are guest worker visa programs and Biden did just um, sort of give temporary status to workers for about 100,000 Venezuelans specifically. Specifically, yeah. Temporarily too, for a year and a half. But but these are uh, a facade of a political problem, which has been going back and forth between the administrations where like the Democrats say, well, we can't get anything done because the Republicans are racist. And the Republicans are racist and the Democrats basically agree. You know, like the dispute between Trump and the Democrats wasn't don't build a wall. It was the Democrats wanted to build a smart wall right? with drones and with like more cameras. They didn't like the optics of having a a dumb wall, right? Yeah. And the dumb wall in some situations is actually better for immigrants because you can just get a ladder. Right. Uh, But the the crisis has obviously um, the crisis when we say crisis this is a humanitarian crisis because people cannot 
feed themselves in the places they're coming from. They're not coming because they love America. They might. Uh, they're not. They're not coming because uh, they they have the American dream. They might, but that's not where they're coming. They're they're coming because the places where they come from are extremely dangerous and they can't eat enough. And that's why so many people are coming from Venezuela. It's a function of America's blockade of Venezuela. It's a function of the failures of the Venezuelan government. Sorry, but this is we have to admit that as well. It's not we can't just blame the United States for everything. But the fact that so many millions of Venezuelans have left their country and have walked through the Darien Strait from Colombia through the jungle to Panama and then taken buses or hiked or whatever they had to do, hitchhiked to get to the American border and cross in extremely dangerous situations is because they needed to feed themselves and their families. And that is a, that's a crisis that um, the United States is perpetuating yeah. by making it harder to do it while simultaneously needing them. Yeah. And these people are caught in between this totally cruel system that is, has a political veneer, but ultimately it is a economically cruel system. And there's a great uh, part in this article that I'll read that gets to the heart of it too. Um, it quotes anthropologist An Angela Stroyce uh, investigating the history of the poultry industry in Mississippi she found that when African-American workers organized for better wages and working conditions in the 1970s, businessmen cultivated an alternative workforce of Latin Americans whom they found in Texas and Florida. As they recruited and transported these migrants, they catalyzed the demographic transformation of central Mississippi and the poultry industry across the South. And she gets into how, like, recently tougher laws on, on uh, undocumented people in Florida has led to an increase in the price of building construction. Mm -hmm. She says that if, um, if uh, workers were paid uh, a fair wage in dairy, the price of milk would be twice as much. Um, so the American economy is based on this kind of cruel, is based on this crisis. This crisis keeps the American economy running. And that's why it's been going on since NAFTA and long before that. Yeah, I mean, it really reaches its height in NAFTA. And uh, what else happens in, like, the 1980s leading into the 1990s is that, like, you know, the grand bargain uh, regime of accumulation, whatever you want to call it, of high Fordism uh, gives way to uh, what we call neoliberalism. And part of that was that jobs were going to be worse, unions were going to be broken, manufacturing was going to leave, either go down south to non-union areas or go to Mexico or eventually go to China. But what did the American working class get in return? It got cheap goods. So this uh, was part and parcel of another sort of tacit bargain that was made, which is that your milk would remain cheap. And in fact, consumer goods would become cheaper and cheaper because it's using cheaper and cheaper labor. Your wages might stagnate or decline, but you'll still be able to keep up some semblance of the lifestyle that you did before with enough cheap consumer goods, cheap food, and of course, cheap credit. So now as we sort of transition into something else and something different, uh, as the geopolitical um, situation changes, uh, as disglobalization continues, as it seems like friendshoring or some sort of renationalization, or at least bringing uh, manufacturing back to North America and creating uh, logistics chains within the NAFTA zone becomes more and more prevalent, perhaps we'll see something change in that. But as long as capital and the state is able to uh, leverage uh, the insecurity and the fear 
uh, and the exploitation of tens of millions of Americans, people who are here in America and working, working class solidarity is going to be very, very difficult. So again, what we should be looking towards, what we should be thinking about, and maybe we'll do a whole episode on this soon, is how do, assuming which we can, that this wave of asylum seekers uh, and immigrants leaving desperate circumstances to come here continues, how do we imagine a socialist, a communist movement that can integrate those people into the rest of the class in such a way that we can build class power together instead of having capital try to pit us against one another? And it's a tough thing to think about, too, because, you know, if we take inflation seriously as something that hurts working class people, and on the other hand, we're arguing, well, uh, even undocumented people should be earning a living wage, you know, that's a con- contradiction, mm. you know, so we've, it's a, it's a huge challenge and we have to be thinking more, uh, much more radically than how it's posed in the New York times or even how a lot of social Democrats pose yeah. it because we're talking about uh, tens of millions of American workers who are an underclass, uh, not necessarily a permanent underclass, but a permanently immiserated underclass. Mm-hmm. It's a function of the system to keep immigrants uh, in a precarious enough position that they can be shipped out at any moment. And also, you know, keep them disintegrated with the rest of the class, which isn't just uh, language or culture or whatever, right? There is like a legal structure in place that ensures that, say, trade unions like mine or others cannot hire or cannot have members who are undocumented workers, right? So how do we rethink our unions in terms of the challenges that it faces that, again, these people, we as workers are being pitted against one another and the legal recourse isn't there. So do we have to think about fighting that on the same terrain that you and me and Varn and others have been talking about fighting workers' struggles outside the bounds you know, of what the law allows outside the bounds of the institutions and structures that we've had handed down to us from the 20th century. It's, it's a, it's a bigger conversation, but we're going to start having it. And it's, you know, the, it's, it's a difficult thing to follow because the the life of an immigrant has to be in the shadows to some extent, but something that we could do is like, for example, I worked at restaurants in New York city for a long time and almost everywhere front of the house was, U.S. citizens or, you know, uh, document people who are documented in some sense. And the kitchen were undocumented people, mostly from Mexico and, La- and Central America. And um, that was my way of learning about how they live, you know, how they got here, uh, like um, uh, why they work so hard. They don't work so hard because they naturally love to work. They yeah. work hard because they have a family at home. Sometimes they have a family here, too. Sometimes they're supporting two families. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, just uh, making those connections and understanding this, the kind of workers' struggle that immigrants have is, is, a, is a big challenge. Yeah, I, um, we have on here uh, the stuff about the World Trade Organization. Um, did you, you wanted to celebrate, right, that the uh, World Trade Organization, which was, of course, set up <laughs> by U.S. capital, is now so dysfunctional that we can call this a big giant dub for the anti-globalization movement, right? A hundred and, uh, I'm sorry, fucking 30 years after all the big protests, right? Finally, this thing is destructed, and it's a self-destruction, so that's a positive thing. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's in some way, it's in some ways very related to what we're talking about because yeah. we're talking about the way that uh, uh, 
the World Trade Organization and other international trade organizations try to um, rationalize and regulate the flow of commodities and labor power is one of those commodities. Um, and we are seeing this major crisis in the flow of labor power uh, because, uh, you know, turned to a humanitarian crisis, which is yeah. not what, not what Europe wants, not what the United States wants. They want it to, they want to manage it uh, in a rational way. So there's like, uh, you know, so labor power is exploited in a, a way that doesn't have major political and social implications. Sure. Um, but this article that you posted shows how even the flow of dead labor uh, <laughs> of, of commodities um, that capital. Uh, non-labor power commodities of capital uh, through international shipping is increasingly, um, I mean, obviously the, the big example of this is Russian commodities because mm. they, have, they have to get around these blockades. Uh, but yeah, maybe summarize this article. Yeah, yeah. So this is an article uh, from Reuters uh, uh, in the business section by Philip Blankensop. Uh, it's at WTO. Growing disregard for trade rules shows world is fragmenting. So just one more example in the sort of litanies of ways that over the last year or two we've been discussing um, this sort of move away from what was, I guess, the Washington consensus or the neoliberal consensus on trade, um, this uh, from October 3rd. Nothing illustrates the crisis at the World Trade Organization more than the piling up of unresolved disputes and the growing list of what it terms the trade concerns of its members. Since late 2019, after the U.S. blocked the appointment of new judges at the WTO's appellate body due to complaints about judicial overreach, 29 cases have been left in, lim in limbo, delivering a heavy blow to the dispute settlement system. Basically, the WTO is like a court, right? And if one country, it, it sets basic ground rules for trade. Uh, and if one country has uh, an issue and a complaint, they bring it up to the WTO. These judges rule upon it and they basically form a settlement for it since 2019. And what was 2019, of course, was that was part of the uh, Trump administration. And what was this backlash, right, to judicial overreach? This is the same sort of conservative, libertarian, sort of nationalistic strain that's been, you know, chafing under all international institutions within the post-war era. You know, the John Birch Society and the UN is like filled with communists and black helicopters are going to come and like UN soldiers are going to come and take your your steer away from you or whatever. This is now spreading to the point where this like hallowed institution, the World Trade Organization, which famously uh, began to include China uh, in 2001, is now all of a sudden starting to break down. Uh, and so what that means is that the American sort of uh, predominance over the flows of capital, the flows of good, but, but importantly, the regulation of those in terms of tariff, in terms of trade, is breaking down in such a way that you have member nations who are complaining now that when they put a complaint up, they can't even get any recompense from it. And it's, it's breaking down. So there's like one more example here of the way in which the rules-based international order, which you hear a lot about these days, especially with... Uh, that, that great big war that's happening in Eastern Europe, the rules-based international order, despite the attempts to defend uh, these great American institutions, American-built institutions like the WTO, the IMF, and let's be honest, the, the United Nations as well, 
is sort of crumbling and disintegrating in the face of all of the contradictions within the global capitalist economy right now. The preeminent one, of course, seems as though it's geopolitical. It's, of course, also economic as well. And that is this budding new Cold War between uh, the United States and China. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how new it is. I guess it's like a few years old. But uh, it's sort of a reflection of the unipolar moment beginning to fade. And what represents the unipolar order better than, of course, this American-led, American-created, American-dominated institution, the World Trade Organization, no longer able to do it's uh, you know regulatory work because American or at least like large swaths of the American ruling class no longer believe in it and it's politically not feasible to actually put the judges in place that are going to get this shit done. And so um, yeah, the, the kind of like jokey question I had about this was like, is this is this a victory for the uh, anti-globalization movement of our youth? Now, obviously they changed the name of it to alter globalization right. to say like, we're not against globalization. We're against, or we're not against globalism, right? We're against this one kind of globalization that, uh, you know, ruins the life of indigenous people, traditional ways of life, ruins the life of workers by forcing austerity, uh, in exchange for, for international loans. Um, that was what that movement that kicks off in Seattle in 1999 was about. It was a, almost entirely left-wing movement. Um, But the focus on it was like the WTO is evil, you know, it's this more or less this shadow government that's like supernatural national body that's removing the sovereignty of, uh, of, of nation states. And, uh, and so obviously there's a, a Bannonite wing that flows from that. I don't think they were part of it, but they kind of come from that. Just like Occupy had like this far right. Yeah movement uh, that's and of, the fed shit yeah uh but i guess my question is if the wto is really in crisis and is sort of breaking down is what's coming after worse do we are, are do we now have to critically support the wto <laughs> well you know every like generation or so we have to like desperately defend in a rearguard manner like the last regime of accumulation that existed you know so, like, in the 1990s, you had to, like, do a rearguard defense of national industry, protectionism, and tariffs. Um, and this was part of the alliance between, like, the environmentalists and the Greens and at that time and, like, the steelworkers, for example, right, who were feeling pressures under NAFTA. Uh, nowadays, it seems like, uh, you know, similar to what happened under NAFTA, it seems like Capitals sort of in the driver's seat, and uh, all of us are either cheering or jeering from the sideline. Um, what the alter globalization movement posited itself as, what it attempted to be, and especially with events like the World Social Forum, um, which took place in Brazil and was a bringing together like a movement of movements of all sorts of different activists, from indigenous activists to environmental activists to labor activists, attempting to chart like a different course, trying to leverage whatever power there was in the 1990s and early 2000s in order to alter this globalization movement. Now, again, we're caught on the back foot because uh, that sort of protectionist, that sort of localist, that sort of... um, I wouldn't say reactionary, but certainly defensive sort of uh, struggle 
um, has worked itself like full circle and is now actually the U.S. state. It's the Biden administration and the Trump administration before it who is putting up the impediments to trade, who is calling for a renationalization of industry, uh, who is calling for friendshoring and calling for erecting and actually erecting trade barriers and tariffs uh, against um, foreign countries, especially China and, as we know, to Russia. So where does that leave us? Are we going to now do the complete opposite? Are we going to say that as activists now we want to like re-liberalize trade, that like we want to trade with China, that actually Chinese jobs are important to American workers because we care about the Chinese working class as well? Are we going to now reverse ourselves and go back to like a, a liberalizing thing? I don't think we should, but I think it fundamentally gets to the question of power and it highlights how little power we actually have to affect these things. It seems as though the alter-globalization movement, despite having large meetings at uh, Porto Alegre uh, in Brazil, despite the various different summit-hopping events that you had through the 90s and into the early 2000s uh, before 9-11, kind of just washed upon the shores of the war on terror, uh, disintegrated under those conditions, and now, uh, in terms of a global movement, you've got uh, environmentalism, right? You have the, uh, the climate justice people who are fighting, um, doing various actions and stuff like that. But what really truly exists of an international movement uh, of working people who can confront these changes and actually offer some other sort of plausible scenario? We just don't have that right now. And similar to the immigration question, it, 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 it begs the question... What, how could we imagine having the power to affect what this new particular phase of global accumulation and geopolitics is going to be? Because as of right now, you can stand there and you could say, like, um, I don't know, like, down with the, the Biden tariffs, allow free trade with China, you know, no sanctions on China, no sanctions on Russia, all you want. But we don't really have much <clears throat> that we can actually do to affect that. I mean... You, you posted, you, you sent me two other articles that are like a, sort of a concerning test case for these questions. One is um, a, a story that comes out of Green Charter Township, Michigan. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is another New York Times. We're, reading, we're really reading the Times today. Hey, listen, it's, Mar it's our local paper, all <laughs> yeah, right? It's yeah. the paper of record. And I will admit that I get the paper copy on the weekend now. We get the weekender. And it's nice uh -huh. to like sit there with a cup of coffee. And, and I use bypass paywalls. That <laughs> still works, thankfully, even though Elon Musk tweeted out for everyone to use it. And it briefly didn't work after he did that. He almost blew it up for everybody, oh, that fucking God, idiot. That but fucking dipshit. I am still able to read the New York Times for free with the bypass paywalls app. Shout out yeah. to bypass paywalls this um, episode sponsored by <laughs> bypass uh i don't think they're making any money off of it so whatever they're doing thank you and i think the new york times more or less lets them yeah I, I, what are they gonna do about yeah it? uh they have so, assholes like me who will actually pay yeah, for it i will i will not be paying for the times oh man i really Fair hope enough. i don't have to pay for the times one day but you can use my account dude if you have to uh, so a rural Michigan town is the latest battleground in the U.S.-China fight. So they, yeah. uh, part of Biden's industrial policy, actually, you know, part of Trump's industrial policy, too, was this onshoring of Chinese businesses, Chinese factories in the United States, um, but also, you know, Korean automotive factories, uh, you know, bringing, bringing these factories into places where there's low levels of unionization. Mm. Um, 
under the pretense of like, hey, we, we're going to get these industrial jobs back. It's going to be for a Chinese or a Korean firm. Right, sure. It's going to um, be Foxconn or something like that, yeah. So, I mean, sounds fine. It is part of the global capitalist system. It is part of the kind of globalization we don't like. But presumably it will be good for Michigan, I sure. guess. But people, uh, this article frames it as as a a, a very strong very right-wing opposition oh, yeah. to this uh, Goshen plant. A very class-based one, as we'll see. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a uh, electric vehicle battery factory um, estimated to cost about $2.4 billion to build on 270 acres, going to employ maybe 3,000 people. That's a lot uh, of jobs. In this small town. Yeah. Uh, probably not union jobs initially but you know you have a right to unionize if you're working here um and they're they're building this thing and people don't like it because it's connected to the chinese communist party which i don't like either but i they they don't like it because these are the people that think that uh tiktok is like stealing your personal information so the communist party of china can do what with it i don't know like dox you to your grandparents or, or some bullshit and it's going to be an, ele- uh, an issue in the election. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is going there. Um, Nikki Haley, too. Nikki huh? Haley called Gretchen Whitmer a comrade of the communists uh, for her her work in getting this thing built, even though, again, Trump did the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, what, what do you make of this? And also, uh, there's a second article about this town in Germany, Rosenhain, Germany, that is going to build a uh, a munitions plant. Germany, you know, doesn't isn't highly militarized since World War II, but they are they do build a ton of munitions, as does the UK. I mean, this is like really obviously arms manufacturing is propping up a lot of the first world industrial yeah. power. Uh, you know, building bombs and planes and defense systems and that sort of thing. Um, and this town in uh, Grossenheim, Germany is protesting the construction of this munitions plant um, in East Germany, largely out of an opposition to the war in Ukraine led by the far-right Nazi, at times, AFD party. Yeah, the alternative for Deutschland. But interestingly also, too, the uh, Delinka as well. It's sort of like when somebody posts that horseshoe theory at you online. This is uh, kind of like a real-world example of it, right? Um, the Germany one is very much representative, I think, of the dynamics in Eastern Germany specifically. The article mentions how, love them or hate them, the Russians have had a lot of influence in the former GDR, uh, and that you know older people actually, some of them think fondly upon uh, the Soviet period, uh, and therefore think kindly of Russia, despite its recent. Uh, uh, war of aggression over there in Ukraine. And certainly in the last 10 or 15 years or so, the more industrial parts of Eastern Germany, along with Western Germany, have benefited greatly from uh, massive amounts of Russian natural gas, right, which has made their industry so much cheaper uh, than it would have been otherwise, as we're very graphically seeing uh, with the German industrial crisis. So the German case is an interesting combination of like a sort of backwards looking like Ost nostalgia for uh, Eastern uh, for um, Eastern Germany 
uh, on the part of older people, but also a kind of groundswell from younger people associated with Derlinka uh, who are uh, pacifists, essentially. Uh, this, similar to the Michigan thing, is going to offer a ton of jobs. The jobs in this instance in Germany are jobs building um, yeah, munitions, uh, black powder. To, and again, uh, a very poor, like the East Germany is, is still the poorest part of Germany. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the integration uh, didn't really do all that much for many, many parts of this. So what you have in both cases here, in the German case and in the Michigan case, is that uh, the economics of things, the economic rationality, is meeting the sort of combination of a heightened geopolitical, we can call it a red scare maybe, but that might be too pat of a way since Russia isn't red, right? Uh, the Russian Federation isn't red. But more like the geopolitical issues that are being faced right now between, let's call it a block of China and Russia and North Korea and Iran on the one hand, and then like the quote-unquote West on the other hand, is starting to have real ramifications for the way that um, manufacturing and uh, industrialization is taking place in Europe and in the United States, and especially running counter to the plans of capitalist politicians. Uh, in both instances, there's these massive subsidies and tax breaks for these industries to come in. In both cases, certainly in Germany, state policy is rearm, right? Have the capacity within the European Union, within Germany, within Eastern Germany to keep this long war, grinding war of attrition going on in Eastern Europe as long as it takes down to the last Ukrainian, down to the last Russian. State policy is that we need to build these munitions in Eastern Germany. And yet, Large swaths of the working class and middle class, for both good and bad reasons, are rejecting this, either out of pacifism or environmentalism or just um, residual nostalgia for Russian relations in the past. Uh, and then in the Michigan uh, experience, you have this really fascinating dynamic, which is that these 3,000 jobs that will be created in what is a cutting-edge industry in the United States and one that the left spectrum of American capital is banking upon to not just be the new lever, the new way in which accumulation uh, continues and also, of course, tax receipts come in, but also as a way to tamp down on a lot of the social dislocation that has led to this quote-unquote populist moment which has in many ways disempowered parts of the ruling class and empowered other parts of the ruling class, they are attempting to do this reshoring of industry thing, but it's cutting against uh, the geopolitical feelings, uh, the anti-China sentiments of people um, in general in Michigan, it seems like, but especially when you look at who is opposed to this new factory, the main woman in charge of the coalition trying to shut this plant down in Michigan owns a 150-acre horse farm. And the people who are trying to stop this are using geopolitics, certainly, because it's a hot-button issue right now in the United States, anti-China shit. But really, you wonder what the local interests of these gentry are, because these are local power brokers within this particular area. This is the petty bourgeoisie that actually um, operates within municipalities and within states that actually has real tangible power on the ground within these communities, these communities of capital, they seem to be rejecting the uh, large swaths of this uh, remanufacturing, reindustrialization agenda 
seemingly for geopolitical reasons, and I think that's part of it, this Red Scare, but also it seems like out of a sort of backwards-looking, small-capitalist self-interest um, that's under the guise of this. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic, and I think it's one that we're going to see more and more because as much as it seems like the left wing of capital is trying to tamp things down, trying to um, basically create a virtuous cycle where government subsidy and tax break uh, for manufacturing and bringing in foreign capital can lead to a jobs boom in the United States that'll kind of start the next cycle of accumulation. There's whole other parts of the American ruling class which are like very backwards-looking petty bourgeois who want to keep a small commodity-producing uh, local economy against the grain of all of that. So I think this is like the one of the ways in which like material interest in class politics reflects itself in this country right now is through like being scared that the the, the Chinese Communist Party is building a grain silo that's actually going to uh, have missiles inside of it. It's like literally what these people believe that like if you let this Chinese company come in and partner with an American company that they're going to be using it to spy on the people of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and like steal the fudge recipe from the local candy maker, <laughs> you know, or you know this paranoia that like I don't know if you saw this meme that like all of uh, McDonald's fries come from Bill Gates owned uh, potato oh, yeah. acres, yeah. you know. So like I, I do think like obviously if you read this article, the Times frames it as these people are nuts yeah. and they're shooting themselves in the foot. They're against their own interests. But I, I think there's a kernel of truth, and the kernel of truth, of course, is the is like what motivated the anti-globalization movement. Mm. It's like, when do the people who live in this town get a say over how they live their lives? Why do we have to beg for any factory coming from anywhere yeah. for any purpose yeah. to to give us to have meaningful lives and yeah. living wages and and you know uh, and also it's sad that like working in an electric uh, battery factory is what people need to have a meaningful life because they can't you know afford to to live a meaningful life certainly, any other way certainly the meaning of their life right. ends for the eight hours in which they walk in the factory door and then leave at the end right well i mean everyone gets some meaning out of work even if it's some bullshit like that yeah or, i suppose you know. so they get community out of it anyways uh but I mean, that's what the nostalgia for industry is all about, right? It's like I, I wish I could go work in the Ford factory like my yeah. pa did, right? Yeah, and one of the things I've been teasing out with Varn on the diving into the wreckage episodes, and he's right to point out. I know you're listening, Derek Varn. He is right to point out that, uh, and I've been pointing to this with chips, especially that this is going to be a huge boondoggle when it comes to the actual profits coming out of these things, even despite the billions upon billions of dollars uh, subsidizing it by the U.S. government, you know, the rate of profit on manufacturing is already relatively low and will only be so, so more so as you create more and more redundant capacity, right? But it seems like the U.S. state, or at least sectors of it, contra other sectors and contra, it seems like local and municipal capital, in many cases, petty bourgeois capital, uh, is making a big bet on these industries for the future of the American economy. So we should see this uh, as a potential, as an opportunity, right? Because when you start to have uh, 3,000-person factories, right, no matter 
which capitalist owns it, whether they're American or Chinese, you now have like a vast um, socialized workforce who's going in. They're working in one place, one big place, which has not been the tendency for American manufacturing or American, you know, working class life for decades at this point in time. You're putting 3,000 people together on a factory floor. This is as much an opportunity as anything else for us uh, to start to actually operate on the ground if there's going to be a manufacturing employment surge in this country. Uh, there's a funny quote from the, the Gochian article about uh, the opposition to the the Chinese factory um, from uh, Lori Brock, who lives on a 150-acre horse farm near where the battery is being built. It's the communist influences that I'm bothered by because they have shown repeatedly that they don't care about our rules, our laws, or anything. They shouldn't be able to buy here. Like, I mean, how much do you think this woman cares about like employment laws on her hard horse farm. Oh, on her horse farm. What yeah. kind of people do you think she hires there? Right. Or even if she is totally above board, how much does she care about where she gets her poultry from? Right. Like referring to what yeah. we were talking about before. Um, like, uh, or certainly how much does she care about the WTO's ability to enforce uh, yeah. trade rules internationally? Yeah. You know, the, the question of law here is a very petty bourgeois way of, raising these concerns as is the you know this uh, this jingoistic opposition to chinese communism and it just it's just so transparently farcical that calls for something like what delink is doing in in that that town in east germany the the left has something important to say here and it's it's difficult to articulate, and I think what we need to do is get you to write another Substack piece. Oh shit, I'm on it already. Excellent. I've actually I'm uh, I'm uh, about six paragraphs into a sixty paragraph thing, so I, I am going to write. Uh, I am writing a, a Substack right now, and what it's about, as like sort of a teaser or whatever, is um, the way that we sort of ontologically like understand American politics, like where we think truth comes from. I've had the trouble over the last like year or so in that um, I've kind of really um, turned my back on um, progressivism and the opportunity to like create some sort of or continue some sort of popular front with progressives or imagine that like, you know, progressives are going to be part of like a larger mass movement that might, you know, we got to bring like these people on our side. Uh, I'm thinking much more seriously now about the ways in which um like a true movement is going to have to be one that breaks with shibboleths both of the left and the right mm. and i don't mean that in like a post-left sort of way i just think that there are some truths out there um that um you know we're not willing to accept but that we have to if we're gonna build something that's mass and not just something that's a subculture well i just i think that like uh it's not in, in a way, yeah. Of course, we have because like the the social democratic line on this stuff is just industrial policy for the most yeah. part. Maybe it's like a more just industrial policy, but it doesn't leave that much uh, from it. It's it's still about you know the the basic interests of the American working class, which it should be like that is the motor of struggle um, of of getting people to like take some authority over their own lives and, and stand up for themselves and, and link in broader struggles. Uh, But also it does have to have this consciousness of the international working class and the fact that the immigrant is part of the American working class in a way as they were in their home country. Yeah. And the reason they're here is because they were kind of in a sense, like internationally laid off. Yeah. 
yeah. or like rendered into surplus population. And so they came here looking for their jobs that they lost. I mean, it's a reductive way of looking at it, but but we as communists have something to say about it that the, the social Democrats and certainly the right are unable to say. Yeah. And yeah, but we haven't said it quite yet on this podcast. Well, no, we're going to, we're, we're going to say but it. We're, we're, we're talking it out. We're going to talk it out. So wait for that uh, Substack piece to come out. I just got back to work and I'm highly tired, but I, I, I swear I'm going to fucking try to get it done in the next week or two. And then I'll, I'll read it out as I did last time for the Patreon. Yeah. Thanks for bearing with us in the last month. We both moved. Oh my God. We did two live shows. We partied really hard. Yeah. Uh, it's been a crazy September, but we've you know we've kept the podcast flowing, kept and, it going, and uh, we've actually seen some growth. So thank you to all of yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, also our rents are much higher now. So <laughs> Patreon.com/slash The Antifada. We'll have uh, we'll be talking more uh, beyond the paywall. Yeah, we'll see you on the other side. <laughs>